Hello and welcome to the Cloister Bell podcast, where Rob and I, with our souls constructed and by slight ligaments, are bound to prosperity and ruin as we continue our works, ye mighty and despair, a reviewing Doctor Who. How is that for folks and quotes and references into our introduction? Probably awful. Anyway, this week we are looking at The Haunting of Villa Diodanti. <laughs> Welcome to the Closer Bell Podcast. I'm Liam, and I am joined as ever by the fearless and therefore powerful Rob. How's it going, Rob? Good. Feeling powerful today. <laughs> Excellent. Glad to hear it. Yeah, don't worry, folks. That's that's me done with the, the forcing of references of Percy Bysshe Shelley and chucking in quotes from Frankenstein. Uh, there's only so much I could do that before it becomes a bit much, even though quoting one of the arguably one of the best uh, influential novels ever. I think for the purpose of this podcast, it would get a bit irksome quite quickly. So don't worry, folks, I'm done with quoting Frankenstein. Well, what's the use of a good quote? <laughs> but I didn't, well, I suppose I did change them slightly. You did so, yeah. change it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the haunting of Villa Diodanti. Yep, that's right. Obviously, as ever, we will be doing spoilers. So if you haven't watched the episode, um and you don't want it spoiled, then we recommend that you listen to this podcast after watching it. Um, yes, go away, but do come back. Yes, <laughs> sort off, come back, listen, enjoy. Great. So anyway, uh, before we get on to that, should we do the trivia question? Yeah, let's do it. Right, great. So uh, just as a quick reminder, Rob and I, prior to the podcast, we prepare questions to ask the other. Obviously, the other person doesn't know what the question is. And at, towards the end of the podcast, we'll see if we knew what the answer was. So my question to you, Rob, uh, is Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus is a novel written by Mary Shelley. What year was it published? Oh, dear. And my question to you, this is either going to be annoyingly easy or annoyingly hard. Okay. In Rise of the Cybermen, Age of Steel, mm-hmm. who created the Cybermen? I don't mean behind the scenes. Um, in universe, you mean the character? The character. Right, okay. I know who it was, so just in terms of remembering the bloody character's name. Anyway, <laughs> let's see me get this wrong towards the end of the podcast. On with the episode. So, um, so just a, a quick look at the cast and crew before uh, doing a brief plot synopsis and then reviewing it. So, the Doctor is, of course, played by Jodie Whittaker, Graham O'Brien... Uh, plays Bradley Walsh uh, Ryan Sinclair's played by Dozen Cole uh, Mandip Gill plays Yasmin Khan uh, Lily Miller plays Mary Wilson Croft Goodwin Jacob Collis Levy plays Lord Byron uh, Nadia Parks plays Claire Claremont uh, Maxim Baldry plays Dr John Polidari Patrick O'Kane plays Ashad or the Cyberman and Lewis Rayner plays Percy Bysshe Shelley as the title suggests, this story is set at Villa Diodante in 1816, on a night that inspired Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. The plan was to spend the evening in the presence of literary greats, but the ghosts are all too real, and the Doctor is forced into an earth-shattering decision. Yeah, this does really put the Doctor in a unique position by mm. the end, doesn't it? 
Mm. Yes, it does. So, um, back in the Jadoon episode earlier in the series, where um, we were surprised by the return of Captain Jack, he had a warning. And that warning in the episode was, you uh, essentially, you will encounter a lone Cyberman, and under no accounts are you to give it what it wants. Um, so, obviously, with the because we knew that the Cybermen were going to come back um, with the, the trailer that was released prior to the, the, the start of the series. Uh, and then, obviously, with Captain Jack giving that warning, it was a case of, well, it's likely that the Cybermen will appear towards the end of the series as, as part of the finale. And we've got two more episodes after this. So really, it could be said that this is the, the first episode of the finale that we're about to see, because this is the episode which introduces us to that lone Cyberman. Uh, I think it was obvious, given that the Cybermen have to pose a threat, uh, that whatever the Cybermen wanted, it would eventually get. Um, but that isn't to say that how that transpires uh, in this episode is obvious. Um, and it, it still remains engaging, nonetheless, that you sort of know that that's where the episode may be going. Um, I quite like the way that this story was structured. So the, the whole episode, I mean, you've got the, the, the episode titled The Haunting Of, um, and we're encountering these literary greats. Uh, Mary Shelley, of course, famous for, Rankin, uh, uh, for writing Frankenstein. And we've got Dr. Polidari, who wrote the vampire story. Um, and this, this, this night where they set themselves a competition to, to write a scary story is, in, you know, is, is, is famous. People are aware of this. Uh, and arguably it's, it's Frankenstein, which is the story which most uh, had the greatest impact over the, the greatest amount of time. And it is, I would say, one of the, the greatest uh, novels. This, so the idea that the Doctor encountering, encountering Mary Shelley on the night she would come up with the idea of Frankenstein is a good one. But of course, it's in terms of Doctor Who itself, isn't an original one. Uh, it has been done before. Over to you, Rob. Um, well, with Big Finish, I believe it was ten years ago. So, 2000... No, it was actually 2009, possibly. Big Finish did a, a short story compilation... And one of the stories in that, it was a quick half-hour story where the the Eighth Doctor meets Mary Shelley. Mm-hmm. And this has been referenced in the Big Finish Doctor Who monthly range with the Eighth Doctor adventures. In his first story, Storm Warning, he gets a copy of Frankenstein, I believe, when he's looking for the TARDIS manual. In the blurb it says, um, yep, there were four of us... Um, violate Geneva and he's like oh well that's not right if Mary if only you could tell the real story <laughs> uh, and this did inspire the um, the Mary Shelley story in Big Finish <laughs> and I don't really want to go into spoilers if you want to listen to it but um, but yes essentially there is a knock at the door but instead of the fam at the door um, it is the doctor it is the eighth doctor. Oh, okay. So, so in, in does so does it have a similar setup or similar similar introduction to to the haunting of Villa Diodanti? You you could draw some parallels between them because in this you have the lone Cyberman. In the big Finnish story, there's also a bit of an interloper that kind of comes and 
becomes the um, the inspiration for, for Frankenstein. Mary does go off traveling with the Doctor at the end of that story and she goes off to have um, they do a trilogy of stories. The first one is The Silver Turk and it all is also about a lone Cyberman. So in that version of continuity, Mary has also met the Cybermen. Ah, right, okay. So that's interesting. But even though, so th- this was just a trilogy of stories and you were saying that the very first one was just a half hour uh, episode, if you like. Mm. I know that a lot of Doctor Who fans uh, are, aw- are aware of it and he- held it in quite high esteem. <laughs> to the point where a lot of Doctor Who fans were sort of, sort of semi-joking, if you like, that the villa, the haunting of Villa Diodanti has effectively ma- made those stories completely redundant. I came across one person who chose... <laughs> it, was a, it was a posed photo, clearly, but they, they chucked their big finished CDs into the, into the bin, took a photograph of it, twitter, uh, tweeted it, and went, well, thanks to the haunting, uh, <laughs> these stories are now completely redundant. So I know that they are, uh, you know, it's, um, they are ha- highly regarded. It's interesting the kind of impact it has on us as fans because it it really bothers me and it, I don't know why. It's not the first time it's happened. Of course, stories and historical events are explored in the books uh, on audio dramas, mm-hmm. and then the television show can kind of revisit them or reimagine them. A few examples I can think of are Human Nature. Yes. Yep. Which was a a Virgin New Adventure book, mm-hmm. and which was adapted into a two parter in the David Tennant era. Yeah. Uh, again, in the David Tennant era, um, it doesn't really contradict the the former story, but the fires of Pompeii, where the tenth Doctor arrives in Pompeii on Volcano Day, and um, the fires of Vulcan was a big finished story starring. <laughs> it was um, Sylvester McCoy, wasn't it? Sylvester McCoy and Mel. It's quite a good story. Mm-hmm. Good standalone story. Um, but again, you can imagine that they're both running around the city at the same time. It doesn't really affect the other. Jubilee was a big Finnish story, which inspired Dalek in 2005. Yes, I'm aware. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, it also went on to inspire the the pizza shop in Torchwood, because they get Jubilee pizzas, which is a <laughs> reference to the big Finnish story. Oh, that's fantastic. I like that. All right, okay. Uh-huh. How does it make you feel, the fact that um, this could have been potentially ignored or retconned because I feel like if Russell T Davis or Stephen Moffat had done this they would have maybe done a bit of a nod to that or something as a bit of a workaround because in the final Peter Capaldi story which featured essentially the origin of the Cybermen mm-hmm. but of course it wasn't on Mondas there were Mondasians on a spaceship which evolved parallel to the Mondasian Cybermen well what and, I like sorry no, no, uh, that's fine. Sorry, I'm interrupting you. Sorry. No, but one of the things I liked about that story was that even though it was uh, a genesis of the Cybermen story, and there were Mondasian Cybermen uh, escaping Mondas, it seemed, what I quite liked about it was that Stephen Moffat had suggested that this was just one genesis of a particular Cyberman. Uh, you know, it was that suggestion that the Cybermen, regardless of what time period and whereabouts in human evolution they they will become a eventuality at some point mm-hmm. um so uh, this group of human-like beings on mondas have created these versions of the cybermen uh you will have a group of humans on another colony eventually at some point will develop uh, another type of cyber 
Mm-hmm. I quite like that suggestion because uh, for two things. One, I think it's a good idea. It makes sense. But also it um, tidies up any continuity problems. Uh, I thought that was quite a neat way of, of, of dealing with that, if you like. I think Stephen Moffat went on to say that he specifically mentioned Spare Parts, which was a, another Cybermen origin story from Big Finish. Mm-hmm. And, and he mentioned that by name and said it doesn't contradict that specifically because of the way he's approached it. Um, of course, the Cybermen have had different origins. Um, let's look at um, Rise of the Cybermen. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they emerged on a parallel Earth. And then, of course, they came into the main universe. And then, all of a sudden, we had Prime Universe versions looking like the... Pete's World Cybermen, and it all became a bit of a blur, didn't it? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, it did. In fact, funny enough, because I think Age of Steel was, was also, I think that was inspired uh, by Spare, uh, Spare Parts as well, because oh, sh- Spare Parts was written by Mark Platt, who wrote Ghostlight, uh, the uh, Sylvester McCoy story. Uh, and I'm sure in the credits of both episodes, uh, it's referenced as uh, Spare parts inspiring Age ah, of Steel. Okay, interesting. So anyway, um, sorry, just I thought. Anyway, to, so to answer your question, does it bother me? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I can't quite comment because I haven't actually listened to that story yet. I can see why it would uh, irritate you because you were saying that it irritates you. We don't quite understand. If you like a story and you've invested in it uh, and you really like it and and so on, and then within the same universe another story comes along and essentially says in in a form that that story that you like and you invested in didn't really exist you could say well it irritates me because essentially what they're saying is it no longer matters mm-hmm. uh, so maybe that's why I, I think it'd be interesting to see what Chris Chibnall's uh, attitude towards Big Finish uh, on, on the whole is because as we know Russell T Davis and Stephen Moffat are fans of fans of it when um, I've forgotten which DVD it was it may have been the Green Death special edition but anyway one of the, the DVDs was uh, special features uh, was looking at um, the audio adventures and eventually what we would get with new Doctor Who and also D. Davis when he was getting uh, the new series prepared the BBC were looking at uh, where its licences were in relation to Doctor Who and wanting to claw them back. And they were having this meeting and there was a chap, uh, according to Russell T. Davis, was the chap who mentioned, oh, there's this company called Big Finish. And Russell T. Davis said that he had to quickly intervene and go, oh, don't worry about, fi- uh, about Big Finish, I'm aware of it, I will deal with it. And then quickly move the meeting on. Because... Mm-hmm. Uh, he, you know, he didn't want the BBC to suddenly, you know, bring, you know, claw back the license so Big Finish wouldn't be able to uh, to make any audio adventures. You know, it was, it was sort of interesting that that was his immediate response of going, uh, right, quick, let's not talk about this because, you know, so obviously he was a fan and was aware that there was the potential of bringing Doctor Who back on television could have also meant the death knell of Big Finish and sort of dealt them in his own way and ensured its con- uh, continuation. Um. Stephen Moffat, I mean, the obvious one is that um, The Night of the Doctor, the, the mini-episode with Paul McGann. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, th- there was a good opportunity to afford Paul McGann's Doctor his own stories and his own continuity and the companions that that Doctor has 
in the Big Finish audio adventures is referenced. Um, it's so. I dare say Chris Chibnall is probably a, an admirer and a fan of, of Big Finish audio adventures, but nonetheless, it is very interesting that we have this episode, the haunting of Villa Diodanti, which uh, completely dispenses with that earlier Big Finish story. Mm-hmm. I think the episode does offer an explanation, but it's one you have to kind of join the dots with your imagination. Um, mm-hmm. The very fact that when the Doctor and the gang arrive, Percy Shelley is absent, mm-hmm. and he should have been there. Um, so because something's happened where the Siberium has arrived and it's caused Percy to be absent, this would suggest that this is a new chain of events. Mm-hmm. not part of the original timeline if you like um, so that would explain why um, that could explain a new origin um, for Mary uh, but that doesn't explain why the Doctor doesn't remember her or rather doesn't acknowledge that yeah. she's a really good friend and mm-hmm. the Doctor doesn't worry about um, the 8th Doctor arriving mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you know it's uh, with a with with show as long as, as Doctor Who is, and with the amount of spin-offs and other things it has gone into, a good idea is a good idea. Uh, and I think that if the makers of Doctor Who, the television show, uh, given given the amount of how long Big Finish has gone on for, and the amount of material that they have, if your approach was, well, I don't want to step on the toes of Big Finish, you'd probably, be, you know... Th- there'd come a point where you'd be really limiting the stories that you can tell. Yeah. And if, you know, the, the idea of the Doctor encountering, encountering Mary Shelley um, is, a, is an interesting idea. You can do interesting things with it. Um, I think there is a point where you would just go, you know what, we, we've got the potential to tell a really good story and just to jettison it uh, for the sake of, well, Big Finish did a version of it more than 10 years ago um, but uh, it is what it is this, uh, this, uh, we can't change it now uh, we have this episode so yeah, we spend a, a lot of money on Big Finish so to throw that into doubt is a bit annoying <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I mean funny enough I mean we, all, we always mock uh, there's like lightly mock Big Finish for <laughs> for the amount of stories uh, and the amount of you know uh, potentials that, that they yeah. have for for plugging more stuff. Yeah. Um, What's the slogan? We love stories. We know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no <Don't> shit. <laughs> yeah. Bloody hell. Do, do, we, we definitely do you? know. <laughs> it's not obvious. Anyway. Um, so anyway, as I was just so bit of a bit of a diversion there. So going back into uh, the episode of the haunting. Um, back into so the episode. We haven't even started it yet. <laughs> Yeah, that's true, actually. So, so going to the episode, finally. Um, so, so, you know, um, we're, we're introduced to uh, the guest characters. And I really quite like the way that it's, the story's introduced because clearly the, the, the whole thing is it's going to resolve around some creepy shenanigans going on. But actually, the way that the story begins is quite, uh, is quite light and a, and a bit humorous. So we have these characters... Um, who are you know behaving quite pretentiously? We have this brilliant butler who just 
worked through all this nonsense with his eye rolls and all the rest of it, which is just an absolute delight. Uh, and then there's this thing of, well, shall we tell a ghost story? And it's all really sort of cheesy, but in a good way and, and very enjoyable. And then there's a knock on the door and, you know, we, the audience, I think, know who's going to be at the door. Of course, it's going to be the, uh, the fan. But um, the way that the way that the the episode is introduced, and when the doors finally opened, both both groups of people frighten each other to death. It, you know, it's an obvious gag, but yeah. it but it works really well, and it's quite enjoyable. And then we go straight into the um, the title sequence from that point. Yeah. So I thought that was quite a good introduction, and actually, I think the episode on a whole has quite a good structure because we begin in quite this light um frothy fun way if you like and then as the episode progresses it gets you know it gets darker uh and eerie mm-hmm. and quite scary but you know we begin with this thing so the the the, the, uh, the TARDIS crew are all there to see um these literary giants um embark upon this thing that would lead to you know arguably some of the, the greatest literature ever written or certainly the most influential um and imaginative uh, but it's not it's not going along those lines is it in fact they seem to be more concerned about you know doing a quadrille um mm. and we have this scene with them all dancing and you know you got the all all sort of everyone talking to each other you know getting the gossip of everyone <laughs> um, which is basically which basically centers around the fact that you know Byron shags around an awful lot mm-hmm. um, and again this is sort of continuing the humorous element which had been established earlier uh, so I mean, were you enjoying the episode at this point? yeah I was I didn't stress myself out too much <laughs> yeah um, we did get another pre-title scene I'll just point that out so maybe we'll get that every episode from now on Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, why did the psychic paper not work? No yeah. important reason. Uh, yeah, I, d- I don't think so. I, I'm, I'm trying. Shakespeare to th- was too clever to read it. Yeah, I think See it's it. this idea that you know the, the writers, uh, you know, people who are famed for using their imagination, and um, I don't know, maybe have some mental resilience in relation to that, yeah. so the psychic paper doesn't work on them. Maybe. Or but, um, the psychic powers are dampened by the um, these weird properties of the house. Mm-hmm, yeah. P- possibly. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it, it's getting to the point now where when an episode doesn't do that and goes straight into the title sequence, that's more of a surprise. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, oh, we don't have a pre-title sequence. How odd. Um which doesn't actually, I mean, disappear in this episode, but isn't you isn't overused. I think the no. way that the song, the song screwdriver is used in this episode is, is quite nicely uh, is quite nicely handled. Ah, uh, there's a great scene with the Sonic in this episode when Polidori asks, um, "What kind of implement is this about the Sonic?" Mm-hmm. And Ryan quickly puts in with one that zaps people's heads open when they threaten them with a gun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you know it's, at that point it's established that uh, Polidori is. Uh, is quite one for just getting his <laughs> dander up and just you know challenging everyone to a duel uh, quite frequently. That again, that 
you know, establishing the humour uh, and the wit of the episode. No, yeah, I, I quite liked all that. Mm. And uh, Ryan, Ryan was quite rude to him. <laughs> yeah, but not to the point of going, how dare I'm... you, sir? I now challenge you to a duel. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, but I quite liked uh, that. Yeah, I quite liked uh, the portrayal of Polidori in this. So I, I liked I liked all that humour, but eventually, you know, we're getting the sense that you know there's something not quite right with the house. No. Um, but again, but before we, before we get to that point, just one last thing I want to talk about, which is um, so they're all doing the quadrille, all this dancing, and the doctor, who's made it perfectly clear, you know, do not prompt them. But you know, we, we uh, with you know the story of Frankenstein or whatever, you know, we've got to let things take their natural course. But the doctor is even getting patient with this nonsense and just <laughs> and just going, why don't we all just tell a really good ghost story, yeah? I love how it's just shot down, just going, no, let's dance. And <laughs> just, you know, I think it's great. So I, I, I love all that. It uh, it was all quite nicely done, but it's around about this this point where things start to turn a bit. Um, because we've got Graham, who's walking around desperate to find a loo. Um, but there's all these sort of odd goings on. A vase just uh, uh, smashes into a wall. Yeah. We have a painting that drops from 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 the wall. Does that rhyme? Um, so, um, so it's like, oh, uh, have we got ghosts? You know, is the haunting uh, mm. in the title a, a mm. literal thing? Um, but then he seems to, the, the house seems to fold in on itself because he goes up the stairs only to then appear at, uh, at the bottom of the stairs again. And that was to do with the perception of the house that was playing mm-hmm. tricks on them. Um, not in the same way, but similar to um, Scarrow. Oh, oh yes, um, yeah. The logistics moving around like um, Castrovalo, but um, I was thinking that um, how the perception of everything was was um, was kind of disguised, where it reminded me of um, Missy and Clara on Scarrow. Oh yeah, I've completely forgotten about that. Yes, you're quite right. Uh, Castro Valva was the the thing that immediately sprung to my mind. Yeah, of course. Um, but yes, I, yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, uh, was that the witch's familiar? Uh, but yeah, the Peter Capaldi story, uh, whether whether on Scaro. Yes, you're right. Um, to sort of re- remind. Or was uh, it the magician's apprentice? It was one of the two. It's one of the two. <laughs> um, one of those episodes. We know which one we mean. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and and then this becomes um, a thread of the episode, and as uh, as you said, it, it, it's later established that this is a, a perception filter. It's this security precaution that has been put into place in and around the house. Um, so people who are on the stairwell seem to be constantly just trapped, and you know that's quite a, a you know quite a creepy idea. And I thought, you know, especially if it's realised well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think it was realised well here. Th- there was a lot of um, a lot of atmosphere, and I think the episode was quite eerie. Uh, and I was certainly um, certainly engaged by it, and uh, I-, I really liked the way that the episode was progressing. I found I found it quite chilling. Well, I haven't mentioned the hand, the hand of fear, <laughs> <laughs> the hand of fear. Um, yeah, so so not only have we got these these strange things going on, we've then got this scuttling skeleton hand, uh, which was established in a, in a couple of shots, just you know, ha- you know, just on the wall, 
He's just gone bloody hell. What the hell's that? Uh, so that was that, that was quite well. And then you just see it scuttling around. So it was a mixture of thing from the Adams family and a facehugger from Alien. Uh, it had that sort of that sort of effect. And um, something less intimidating sprung to my mind. It oh, was, what was the, that? The mannequin arm on Eccleston. <laughs> oh yes, and Rose. Yeah. Be- because um, the skeleton hand tried to strangle Ryan, I think, and they had to pry it off. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, I think the way that it's established and seeing it around, it reminded me of Thing from the Adams Family and a bit of um, Facehugger from Alien. But yeah, yeah. The, when it grips Ryan by the throat and the way that that scene is portrayed and acted, uh, which was a bit more comedic. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think at that point it reminded uh, it reminds of Eccleston in, in the episode Rose when he got this plastic arm around him. Uh, so again, it was sort of th- that balance of of horror and humour. Mm-hmm. Ryan's playing the piano with, um, with Mary, and he mentions Grace. Mm-hmm. Little, little reference there. Her name hasn't came up enough in this series, I don't think. She really felt like a member of the family in the first series because. Um, she had such a big effect on on the on the um, the start of the series. You know, she was, of course, um, an important part of their lives, and she mm-hmm. didn't turn up in the odd episode. Um, but in this series, she's almost forgotten about. Yeah, to the point that when when there's that br- when we when we see her in Can You Hear Me, um, it comes as a bit of a surprise. You can probably be forgiven for thinking, "Who's that?" <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, Could, possibly because it was from. Um, Back in 2018. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, perhaps that goes into your earlier point of maybe, you know, th- um, this period of Doctor Who, the, the Jodie Whittaker era, uh, probably will work best, you know, if if we you know, go back to Series 11, watch the episodes going straight into Series 12. Because, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's, 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 there was quite a gap. You know, no sooner had the show come back than it was off the air for a year. Um in, in terms of television, that's quite a long time. But anyway, yes, you're right. Uh, so Grace uh, gets a mention. I think it was quite nice getting a mention from from Ryan at this point because whenever Grace has been mentioned, it tended to be in relation to to Graham. Uh, especially the fact, in as I said in the previous episode, in Can You Hear Me, it was from it was from Graham's perspective. Mm. But not forgetting that you know Grace was Ryan's grandmother. Um, was. Which was quite a maternal figure, wasn't she? Yes, yes, very much so. So um, to get that reference from from Ryan, I think you know, I think that's probably the reason why it, it even though it's just a, a subtle reference, uh, a minor reference, if you like, it, it sticks out all the more. Mm. And both hands are missing from the chest, aren't they? Yes. So it it, it transpires that. Um, Percy is quite into collecting macabre stuff, so he's got this uh, this skeleton from someone who fought in the Napoleonic War. <laughs> so again, we've got this this ske- the remains of a body, this skeleton, with its uh, with both hands missing. But again, you know, we've got that you know that, that thing of um, establishing the, the the horror here, but then the doctors, you know, glorifying that she's got this Napoleonic helmet with this with this plumage. Um, which he seems quite chuffed with and does actually suit um, so uh, again the thing that I've got that even though this was a good idea and it was realised quite well and it established the, the eeriness and the creepiness of the episode unless I missed something at the end of it what was the point of 
this stuff to do with a skeleton? Um, well, there's there's two forces at play here in this story. Mm-hmm. Um, one being Percy um, is infected with the Siberium, and he's using this ability to um, defend the house, yeah? Yeah. And Graham encounters some ghosts in this episode. Yes, that's true. So, so yeah, there is, there is potentially some supernatural stuff going on. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, yeah, maybe it is one of those things that really it's, it's up to you as the audience. Because I remember going along with it um, as the episode, uh, whilst I was watching the episode and liked it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until afterwards I was thinking about it and went, was that explained? I mean, Or was it the, the Cybermen trying to force his way into the house by controlling the, um, the bones? I think so. I think it would make more sense if it was either that, uh, either the Cyberman was involved, given the fact that it was, you know, it was trying to kill, uh, kill people, uh, yeah. na- namely Ryan, or um, it was the actual part of the haunting of the the episode. Yeah. Because I think that you know, given the fact that this was quite a dangerous thing, um, given the way that everything else transpires, uh, if it was um, Percy's security measurement. Because of the Siberian, mm. uh, it doesn't quite fit in with everything else. No, it doesn't. No. Um, so it wasn't really explained very well, was it? Unless there's no. something we missed. Um, I think it's feasible that the the Cybermen could try and animate bones. <laughs> um, <laughs> the Daleks, using a virus, have turned corpses into Dalek agents, haven't they? In the yeah. Silent of the Daleks. Yeah, and not forgetting what Missy did in uh, Deep Dark Water. water. Uh, Dark Water, sorry. Yeah, yeah, they're in Deep Water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so maybe it's something with that. Yeah, so it's it's not it's not without prescient. You know, it has it has been established uh, previously in the series. And yeah, maybe it is one of those things that it, it doesn't have to be uh, you know spoon fed to the audience. It's up to us. You know what what we make of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it just the Doctor sp- does taste the bones. I mean, this point. <laughs> Byron's fascinated by it, yes. Um, which is a quite a cool dynamic. Um, but the Doctor doesn't detect um, anything wrong with it, so maybe she doesn't detect um, the presence of a supernatural entity. Oh, I was going to say the presence of a, a biomechanical um, presence, oh, right, na- okay. nanotech or anything. Yeah. Because well, actually, that's that's quite good. I think so. I'm going more down the lines of it's probably something to do with the, the general gen, general haunting because uh, the doctor would be aware of that sort of tech, so I would assume would be able to test it. Whereas it's established once again at the end of the episode that the doctor doesn't believe in ghosts, mm-hmm. um, so that just brushes that aside. So yeah, maybe it was maybe the the, the hand and the skeleton thing was just uh, was actual evidence of a genuine haunting taking place. I quite like that idea. So yes, so all these peculiar things have have been taking place in the episode. The house uh, has been folding, seemingly folding in it, in on itself. People not being able to get out of rooms or look or different locations in the house. Um, Polidori, who has been experiencing um, difficulties to sleep, finally manages to nod off. But then, because he is asleep. Um, he then seems to go like in a zombie-like state and walk through walls, and it's the fact that he walks through a wall, and then seemingly appears 
uh, in a room that is located upstairs gives the doctor the clue that there's all this perception filter thing going on. Yes. And actually, um, and I thought that was quite. I thought that was a good explanation and realised really rather well. And the fact that this affected Polidori was because he was in a, a sleep-like state, so and was sleepwalking, that and therefore the perception filter didn't work on him because he wasn't conscious to accept it. So he just walked through a wall. Yeah. Um, which, which was, was essentially like, a doorway. Which was yeah. just a doorway. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. I liked how that was revealed and how it was explained. I thought that was good. Mm. Um, because then we then established that there's been this haunting presence outside the house. There's been this lone figure hovering and hanging around the lake, which is um, a little bit outside the house. Um, I think at this point, I mean, I don't know whether you thought the same of going, right, this has got to be the lone Cyberman. Mm, I wasn't certain. No, no, I wasn't certain either, but I mean, yeah. did, did the thought creep into your head? It did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that, so now we've got this this threat. It's it's explained, you know, the, the Doctor seems to now know that, right, all this thing that's been happening in the house is a security measure to prevent whatever that thing is from getting into the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and this thing is then trying to uh, transport itself into the house. The security is able to work a little bit to prevent it before then finally it does enter the house and then lo and behold it is the Sloan Cyberman yeah um, and we finally had the reveal of the Cyberman's face um, mm-hmm. we were wondering um, was one of the TARDIS team going to become a Cyberman mm-hmm. but they still might yes that's yeah yeah that's still a possibility but not the lone Cyberman <laughs> yeah no no but not the yeah you're right, oh, Yasmin the lone mm. well it wasn't the lone Cyberwoman <laughs> But that would have, that would have been typical of Chibnall, wouldn't it? Oh God! Um, well, funny enough, because uh, Torchwood uh, has has just been released on um, on BBC iPlayer. So you know how the, all of New Doctor Who was, has been available on iPlayer for for a while. Yes. Uh, now now Torchwood is is finally up. Well, that's there. great because it hasn't been available on streaming service in the UK in a long time. It was available on Netflix years and years ago. Mm-hmm. Um. I didn't appreciate it until it was gone. I think, you know, um, I've got all my DVDs, which are in a cupboard with all of my Doctor Who DVDs. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of hard work. You know, I think, oh, I'll go out and get my DVD, put it on. If it's on a streaming service, I could watch it on my phone easily. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I was on um, I was on iPlayer last night on my phone, just skimming through here and there. But it's, um, it's nice that it's a lot more accessible, well, to, to us that already own it, but we can watch it a lot more easier. But it's accessible to a new audience or people that don't ordinarily have it mm-hmm. and it was quite nice because actually Torchwood uh, I think for uh, possibly a couple of days but for a while it was actually trending on Twitter because of it and a lot of people are excited by it one of the best reactions that I've seen on Twitter about it was that someone clearly watching it for the first time going through episode by episode when it came to the Cyberwoman episode actually tweeted they went my god I didn't know this was real because it had seen photographs of it all right. She she th- she thought it was a spoof. She didn't think it was a real thing, which is understandable, <laughs> you know, given given the design of the thing. And then couldn't believe that actually it was a real thing. I think the idea of this, because funny enough, that was an episode written by Chris Chibnall, wasn't it? Yes. Um, now that I think of it, it was a bit of a Frankenstein episode, wasn't it as well? Yeah. Because they um, switched the brains and uh, 
reanimated the body and things like that yeah mm-hmm. i mean because i think actually the, the the idea of the story itself was a good one uh, and i think actually from a script perspective was probably quite decent although... i think it was a decent episode yeah i think probably uh, it's been a while since i've watched it so I, I may disagree now i mean i might watch it now and go mm, maybe some of the dialogue suspect but i think actually from a script perspective from what i remember it was actually quite good i thought i think it was actually from a design perspective that's where the story falls down i mean the design of this i mean it's basically um a cyber bikini she's even got cyber high heels yes. i mean the whole thing <laughs> so like why would uh, yeah yeah it's a strange one um obviously she was converted in canary wharf where everyone else was having their brains removed uh-huh. but instead of removing her brain they spent the time a kind of um making a suit for her yeah. Which um uh, <laughs> I, don't know I think your reaction. Yeah, maybe she reaction was wearing it. heels at the time and but uh, it was um <laughs> it was cyber tech. I was gonna say maybe um the Cyberman technology was quite advanced and it used nanotech or something, but it wouldn't have. It was just um it was just technology from Pete's world. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't yeah. make much sense. No, but no. um. Anyway, I just sorry. I just <laughs> just thought I mentioned it. I mean, because of anything. I mean, it is iconic. Yeah, I think they had the best intentions. They thought it was going to be brilliant, possibly. Oh yeah, possibly. But uh, um. Anyway, I uh, just thought I'd mention it. So, so going back to the haunting. Maybe it was like a bit of a John Nathan moment where the de- designer was like, oh, well, I'll just make it like this, shall I? Put high heels on it. <laughs> and they were like, Chim was like, yes, that's the look. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I really hope that's the story. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> more breasts, more high heels. <laughs> Cyber bikini, brilliant. <laughs> Oh, I'm going to watch that episode. Of course, now. we're referencing Colin Baker's coat here, his outfit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, for, for those that don't know, so because um, what happened was uh, John Nathan Turner had given um, the costume designer the brief that the Doctor's costume had to be tasteless. Uh, and the costume designer was, you know, found that a quite a difficult brief because it was quite, you know, quite a good, talented, skillful costume designer. And wanted to have costume, you know, colours that at least complemented each other and didn't punch you in the face. But Jonathan Turner apparently went, no, it's not tasteful enough. And the story goes that uh, eventually the costume designer just came up with this thing as a joke and going, oh, something like this, you mean? And then Jonathan Turner went, that's exactly it, brilliant. And the costume designer was like, you can't be serious. And then we got um, Colin Baker's infamous or famous, depending on your point of view, uh, costume. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I believe the story. the story goes that John Nathan Turner attended a wedding with Colin Baker and he was wearing some bright Hawaiian shirt or something and that was the moment when he kind of knew <laughs> he wanted him in those colours. <laughs> really? So, yeah. Right, okay, wow. <laughs> anyway, we, whatever the story is, we know what the result was, but anyway... Um, Yes, interesting. So now, with going back to the haunting, so at this point, the the episode had quite a, a, a grounded, organic, 
if this makes sense, um, uh, eerie feel. It it largely felt like a normal uh, horror ghost story episode, if you like. And then finally, we started to get these science fiction elements woven in to the episode. So the expl- the explanation is, it's all been down to a um, uh, a perception filter. And as I said, the, the episode has largely eerie up until this point, but then we have the Cybermen come in. And I think it's with the, uh, the introduction of the Cybermen. That's when the story really becomes horrific. Because I've always thought that the Cybermen are a good idea. I like the idea behind the Cybermen. And they have appeared in some of the best uh, Doctor Who stories, some of the best Doctor Who episodes. But in terms of something generally scary or horrific or really threatening... I've never really got that from the Cybermen. Sometimes they have been able to do that. So largely, I feel that the, the potential of the Cybermen hasn't been fully realised. Uh, certainly, I think, in New Doctor Who. Uh, but here, I think this is the, the first Cybermen story, I think, where you know we've only got one. I mean, it could be argued that this does, for the Cybermen, what Dalek did in the Eccleston era for the Daleks. You've got this... this this lone version of this iconic villain and it makes it a real threat yes and as I said I think this was when the story got really horrific uh, well yes I feel like you're right about the Cybermen how they kind of lost the fear factor there because the Cybermen of course are basically humans with their emotions and their feelings stripped away <laughs> and as humans um, we are capable of anything but we have these morals that hold us back from that, you know. Mm-hmm. And if you strip that away, um, and make us capable of anything, that's the more terrifying thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the Cybermen are just this uh, uh, are incredibly ruthless. Uh, I mean, it, I mean, they are extreme, and mm-hmm. they have this this one clear thought, which was that everyone has to be exactly like them, and they will they will go out to. And they will do everything in order to make that happen. Um, and so we've got this lone Cyberman who's trying to find this thing, whatever it is. It's, it later transpires that it's uh, this 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 thing, the Siberium, which is uh, which has all the knowledge of everything to do with the Cyberman's future. And if they get this, this will make it. Um, uh, it's sort of. You know, in Genesis of the Daleks, where uh, the Doctor is is forced to provide all the information on the Daleks' defeat, so the the idea is that Davros would feed that into the Daleks, so they they will have all the strategic um, foreknowledge. Yes. Uh, the, the Siberium sort of works in the same way in this episode. That if the Cybermen gets hold of this thing, they will they will be uh, invincible basically because they will have this all the strategic knowledge. Um, so that's what it turns out that this lone Cyberman is after uh, and he will do anything to do that and he's going around the house and um, he he encounters the butler kills him snaps his neck yes uh, uh, we have we have a baby uh, and that's been locked uh, protected by um, uh, by a maid and she is, she's killed. Her neck is so snapped. swiftly. We didn't. We don't think we heard a snap. No, I think. It was, I think that maybe that would have been a, a step too far. 
I think so. I mean, because I think there's a, the, there was a lot of genuine horror within this episode. I think that if we had, uh, I think that would have perhaps pushed the episode a bit, a bit more into adult territory. I mean, I think it could be argued that this episode, you know, because this is fam, this is a you know, Doctor Who's a family viewing show. It could be argued that this episode maybe overstepped a line. I don't know. That's a conversation perhaps worth having. Uh, perhaps maybe they just got away with it. I think that if you had heard the snapping of bones. Mm. Um, I think that probably would have been a bit too much and um, Mary Whitehouse would have been spinning in her grave she probably already is with this episode um, I mean it's, it's 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 scary enough anyway and then we see the Cybermen pick the baby up uh, and then and then we cut to some other action and uh, I mean that was scary I mean uh, especially you know we you know we see didn't this... he say you, you'll become like me or something like that yes and you and that really, um, so not only have we seen the horror of this Cyberman murdering people, but then we also have the horror of this, you know, the, the idea of cyber conversion and that it will affect everyone, even even, even an infant. Mm. Uh, so so the, that's a scary, horrific idea, you know, given that we know what cyber conversion, what it is about and what it involves. Uh, and then for there's a there's a period in the episode when we we don't see or hear anything to do with the baby, uh, and you know I was on the edge of my seat, gripped by this episode, both in terms of the excitement but the horror it was instilling. It was uh, I found it really engaging, but then when finally when it's revealed that the that the that the baby is alive and well, oh that was a blessed yeah. relief. And he chose not to convert the child. Um, as a matter of fact, um, the baby doesn't doesn't survive. In reality, yeah. yeah. Initially, I was wondering, is the baby going to get infected with um, a cybernetic virus or something? But no, it just wasn't the case. You know, yeah. the baby baby was too too weak, too feeble to convert. Yeah, I mean, because ter- you are quite right. In reality, the the baby unfortunately didn't survive. But I mean, in terms of the episode in of itself. It, it, it's a moment of relief, you know, we, we yeah. see the baby, yeah. But that's, uh, of course, mortality rates in another time, that's a whole a whole other matter, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So not only do we see the horror of that the episode contains, of the supernatural, of the real, of the, the Cybermen snapping people's necks and killing them, and the horrific uh, ideas, you know, the, the potential that uh, a baby would be cybernized. Um... We then have some incredibly strong, uh, disturbing dialogue to, to emphasise all this. But before we get on to that, I just want to get... So, I just want to touch on the humour a bit. So, going back to that for the moment. Because, actually, I thought there were some cracking good uh, lines of dialogue earlier on in the episode. Um, you know, the, the, um, the guest characters are querying about the TARDIS crew. And Mary Shelley goes, I don't think they're really from the colonies. And Byron says, no, she, she meaning the Doctor, is from somewhere far, far stranger. Yes. And, Doct- and Dr. Polidori says, the North? The North. <laughs> I cracked up. I just thought that was brilliant. I, th- uh, I thought that was hilarious. Um, it sort of reminded me a bit of, because one of my f- all-time favourite uh, lines of dialogue in Do- Doctor Who is from the Sylvester McCoy story, uh, Survival, where Ace encounters one of her friends she hasn't seen in ages, and she goes, we thought you died. Well, well, either died or went to Birmingham. <laughs> <laughs> just 
hilarious, cracks me up, and it, 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 that, that line of dialogue had um, the same effect on me. I just thought it was great. Uh, and there's another line of dialogue which I quite like, uh, and this is the point where uh, the Cyberman's in, uh, introduced into the story and is having a conversation with the Doctor. And he says, you know, you appear courageous, but your vital signs portray a heightened state of anxiety. And the Doctor goes, oh, as I like to call it, Tuesday. Um, <laughs> I quite like that, and I love Jodie Whittaker's uh, delivery of the line. I like that one a lot. So I just thought I'd mention that because... So those were the, 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 the two humorous lines of dialogue that, that stuck with me. But I think the, the line of dialogue that I'm really haunted by is towards the end of the episode... But I'm perhaps jumping the gun because we haven't quite got there yet. Um, so before we get there, is um, uh, is anything that I may have missed that you want to talk about? Bones in William's cot is a bit of a haunting one. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. And again, I think that to- I think that goes more into the um, the uh, sense of haunting, and I think that's probably explained by you know th- there were some genuine ghosts in this episode. Yeah. Of course, um, they bring Graham some snacks. <laughs> yes, yeah. And when Graham's talking to the Doctor, um, supposedly through the chimney breast, uh-huh. um, he takes his eyes off the ghosts. I mean, as if you would do that. <laughs> yeah, sure. So he turns on them, they were just gone. Byron's interested in the phrase zombie at some point. Yeah, that's true. I mean, because uh, it would have been an anachronism at this point. Um, and our, our understanding of um, what zombies are has, has changed over the years from, from what they from what they were originally uh, conceived as. In fact, I think it's uh, it's touched upon in a Virgin New Adventure story called White Shadow, I think it's called. Oh, the Doctor did say she won't lose anyone else to the Cybermen. Mm-hmm. Is this a clear reference to Bill, mainly? Yes, I think so. Uh that's the most yeah I, I definitely think so I mean obviously there's the um, the thought of, of Adric from the story Earthshock but yeah I think Bill certainly is there I mean because yeah. Adric died part of I mean he could have easily escaped if you like uh, Adric uh, but you know got embroiled in cyber plot Bill on the other hand was different because she actually was turned into a cyberman yeah and that is the that's the real threat that they pose isn't it yeah the Cyberman recharges when he's struck by lightning, and that's very much a Frankenstein thing. Yep, very much so, yep. Of course, they find Percy, don't they, in the basement. And yes. this is where the, the climax kind of takes place. Um, she makes mental contact with him, and we get um, a bit of a recap on everything we've missed about the Siberium. Yeah, that's true. So, uh, everything to do with the Siberium uh, is explained. It's been housed in Shelley if you like and it's actually it's actually the Siberian that doesn't really want to be found or used by the Cybermen so it's actually the Siberian that's put all these security measures in place isn't it uh, yes it's like it's, uh, it's sentient yeah or it's using a, an aspect of Percy's sentience as a tool I don't know maybe it is sentient though like an AI yeah, I think that, that that's the impression that, that I got from it. Yeah, it's um, sentient, like uh, artificial intelligence. Yeah, and so now we're, we're, we're you know we're entering the uh, the climax to the the episode, and we're getting um, you know the, the Cybermen who wants the Cybermen is getting very close to it, 
and it's sort of interesting that in some respects the Cyberman is willing to bargain. It's uh, sort of you because know, either way he he, he will get it, uh, and he says right, you can either give it to me voluntarily, uh, in which case Shelley will live, or I will kill you all and remove it from Shelley anyway. And then we get this this scene, you know, with uh, a little bit earlier than that, but Ryan. Ryan is actually the one suggest, suggest, you know, the thing of, I'm sorry, it's but why, just one life. It, it's one life for the sake of all of humanity, but not just now, but of the entire future. Wouldn't it be best if we just allow Shelley to to die? I think it's a perfectly reason. Well, I think it's a perfectly uh, normal reaction to have, at least contemplate. The Doctor's not too pleased by this suggestion. However, the Doctor's response, um, she defends not simply because it's not uh, it's not a battle of numbers, a battle of lives, um, but she defends this because um, simply because of the influence it'll have on history, yeah. Not because it, not because it's a single life. Yeah, that's true. I, um, I quite like the Doctor's reaction in the sense that um, you know she, she she was talking about you know how words matter. Uh, and I agree with her, you know, words, language, the influence that they have do matter. But you're right, her reaction is in relation to, you know, the influence that yeah. Shelley has. But the argument centres around the fact that, um, you know, do we save a poet uh, for the sake of humanity's future? I mean, what do you think, Rob? I don't know. I, I guess she's right, obviously. It's a very delicate balance if you're going to affect... Um literature yeah and the influence that he has in the future but you know there are other poets anyway anyway <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry um but i thought that was that was quite a, a good scene because you know originally it, in previous episodes you know that the doctor has said that you know there's um that they all agree and there's this level playing field you know between her and the rest of uh, the TARDIS crew. But on this occasion, you know, she sort of responds with that and going, you know... Because actually in the past, she's referred to it as a, as a flat power structure, or words to that effect. Here she's basically said, you know, it's democratic, but with but with her at the top of uh, a mountain summit. So anyway, as we, as we established, you know, Shelley isn't allowed to die. She... Um, but what's interesting is that... So Mary Shelley... Uh, comes in and starts to have a conversation with the Cyberman uh, appealing to his emotion because it's established at this point the baby, uh, he, he didn't kill the baby and um, has this conversation and trying to appeal to his better side and at this point I thought there was the strong potential that this was how the, the episode was going to perhaps resolve itself um, so I don't know about you but I thought that this was um this is how the episode could uh, resolve itself. In fact, because it's, it's been many, many years since I've uh, I read Frankenstein, so I may be misremembering some of it, but uh, I think towards the, the end of the novel, maybe in a, I can't remember if it's when they're in the Antarctic or just before, but there's, uh, there's a bit when uh, Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster are having a conversation about, you know, about what Frankenstein has, has, has done and what it is to be effectively what it what it means to be human and to be good and so on um, and I think this scene deliberately mirrors that so we have Mary Shelley you know, talking to the Cybermen and trying to you know talk about you know um, clearly there's something going on there there's something good about you you know you had a 
you had a baby uh, and you didn't kill the child. And I thought, you know, I thought this was a really good scene. Uh, there was a moment when I thought, oh, is this is this potentially how the episode is going to resolve itself? But actually, you know, and it, it looks like it does. But then it quickly uh, turns back round, and uh, it, this goes into the um, the line of dialogue I said before, which I found really, really, I find quite chilling and haunted me. And it's this bit where. Uh, you referenced it earlier where the Cyberman states that you know he, he didn't kill the child or, uh, or convert it into a Cyberman because he saw the child as weak but it goes on more than that uh, he, he, he talks about that when he discovered his own children joined a resistance to combat the Cyber Empire he slit their throats god that's horrific <laughs> and the very <laughs> fact that he's um, it feels like he was being quite sadistic here the way he was maybe implying he was uh, empathising mm-hmm. uh, with Mary, and but then he, he kind of flips that. Yes. Um, yeah. This kind of goes down to the fact that was his emotional inhibitor not 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 functioning. I think the doctor actually explains that uh, it may not have even even been installed, uh-huh. uh, but I, I do think there is a bit where it does. Uh, it is actually explained. I think it's interesting that actually, because you know what we've seen before is that we have a Cyberman here who really does pose a threat, is really scary, is horrific. Is a Cyberman who, um, I think they get the balance quite right. Actually, is is motion is emotional when I think uh, the story needs it and it's explained as such. But then there are moments when he's quite cold and, and calculating, mm-hmm. uh, and it could be argued that even though. The idea of the Cyberman is that it's effectively a human with the emotions switched off, if you like. Um, perhaps works best when that rule isn't so strictly adhered to. Maybe there has to be some sort of a emotion for the Cyberman to to effectively work. I like that idea. Yeah. Shelley refers to him or recognises him as a composite of men, mm-hmm. which was another reference. Yeah. And then she, oh, the, then she says, "They hurt you, this modern Prometheus." <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. But uh, unlike my references at the beginning of this podcast, these ones work. But yes, um, her attempt at empathy um, doesn't quite work, and of course, she gets quite a sadistic response. <laughs> yeah. So yes, the Doctor chooses to give up the Siberium to save the Earth, which, which was a point we hadn't got to yet. We we're talking mainly about um, about Percy's sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um. But of course, the Doctor absorbs the Siberium, and yep. she willingly gives it up. But if, if apparently she had no choice in the matter, really, did she? No, apparently not. Well, well, it's interesting that because the Cyberman threatens with the fact that he will get his ship to destroy the entire planet. Yaz's reaction, which I think is interesting, and maybe maybe she was right felt that the Cyberman was bluffing yeah uh, in which case the Doctor could have kept the Siberian but she wasn't willing to test that theory out uh, it's a strange one because the Doctor is quite often in a position um, where she's up against the wall she's in a no win scenario and she uses her intelligence to get out of that position and in this case she just kind of yielded and gave it, gave up and if Jack knew what he was talking about, did he think um, sacrificing the Earth was um, a, a better compromise? 
Well, going back to the Jadoon episode, it did seem to be the case that that was the, that was where Jack was coming from. You know, you uh, at no costs must you give the Cyberman what it wants, uh, and so it was sort of you know it doesn't matter what the stakes are, what the Cyberman is willing to do, it mustn't get the Siberian under any circumstances. Um, but of course, must recognise that the Doctor would never put the Earth in such peril. No. Um, um, what if this is a bit of a red heron and this isn't the lone Cyberman? And what if one of the companions does become one? Sorry, say that again? Uh, what if we, we kind of theorise that um, if one of the companions becomes converted, mm-hmm. um, then the choice of giving the Cyberman what it wants um, might refer to a companion. And what if, um, what if that's the case still? Given some, given the Cyberman what they want, um, it could mean something else entirely. This yeah. is com- completely hypothetical. It's not based on anything. Sorry. No, no, I know, but it's it, it's an interesting question and a, an interesting line of thought because uh, it, it could be the case that this could be a, a red herring that actually that, you know there's something else going on. Um, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting possibility. Actually, we'll we'll just we'll just have to wait and see. And of course, the final scene is um, Graham telling Graham telling them about the ghosts, and I'm guessing this is just to add to the mystery of the episode. It's not something that is going to be resolved at some point, I'd imagine. Mm-hmm. So, on to listeners' responses now. I've just got a tweet from the Doctor Who Target World podcast. I probably missed this. I think the response, you haven't, just in time. But it wasn't bad, not brilliant. Enjoyed the villains, just trying to sort out the Mary Shelley podcast for tomorrow's recording. Oh, that's another one to check out. Mm-hmm. See what you thought of the episode. Badwolf66 said It felt more like a Doctor Who episode The ghost story part never interested me I knew from the spoilers That there would have, there would be a lone Cyberman I just didn't know When or where to expect it When he arrived making his debut I wasn't expecting him to be So emotional and quick To anger An interesting take on the Cyberman The lone Cyberman was giving me David Banks Cyberleader vibes he was intimidating and had a far more powerful screen presence than the Doctor. I consider this as the Cyberman trilogy, and it looks like we will be seeing many more versions of Cybermen in the next episode, which is great. The Doctor Falls had multiple Cybermen variants, but they were just cannon fodder because you know Moffat. Yeah, I think um, this is definitely the the first in the the, the trilogy. So you know the the, la- the the last two episodes are going to be the se- season finale, but this feeds into it because uh, the Cybermen are clearly going to be the the main villain in it or the villain. Um, so yeah, I agree with that. I think it's interesting to sort of compare uh, the Cybermen here to to David Banks because David Banks, who played the Cyber Leader th- uh, throughout the the eighties, was said to give you know quite. On occasion, quite an emotional uh, response, uh, but people, you know, didn't criticise him for it. It was just an observation made, and he, you know, he gave uh, a very good performance of it. Um, and yeah, as we've said, there is there is an element of emotion in the Cyberman here, but I think what makes it a threat is is clearly it's it's you know he he is he is angry, and like as you said before, is quite sadistic. Um, but so what I was saying before is maybe this is what we need the Cybermen to be. 
in order to be a threat, you know, uh, play on what we regard as negative emotions, you know, have the, if, if they are going to be emotional, have them angry, um, have them being sadistic, um, probably works, but yeah. Christopher Brett Hall said, it was a lot of fun, a damn fine story that I initially thought would be a filler episode, but it turned into something bigger, something that kind of makes the series end on a three-parter. Not sure if I really got the whole thing with the spooky skeleton hand and skull, though. Yeah, yeah. we didn't get that either. No, no, I didn't. Because, uh, yeah, we spoke about that earlier. I think um, I think it's one of those things that, you know, it's not necessarily perhaps spoon-fed and it, uh, to us as an audience, and it's sort of up to us how we take that. Uh, I'll put that down to a haunting thing, as we discussed before. When I started it, I didn't, I didn't perhaps suspect that the Lone Cyberman would appear in the episode, and therefore leading into the finale. So it's like what we were saying before. Yeah, this this really forms part of the trilogy. This feeds into it, uh, and yeah, there was a lot of surprises. So yeah, I think that, I think that covers the episode quite well, actually. Rob Keeley said, "What a terrific piece of Doctor Who! Easily the best piece of Jodie's tenure so far." Spooky, atmospheric, tightly constructed, great focused of sci-fi and history, brilliant dialogue, and best of all, no lectures. Please let them stay this good. Full marks for Maxine Alderson. All right. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's really good. Uh, strong feedback for it. Um, I might actually have to agree on it being the best Jodie Whittaker episode. I'm going to have to give that some thought. I certainly rate it very highly, and it's. I think it's clearly one of the, the very best. And yeah, there was plenty of uh, threat and um, an atmosphere, and the episode was uh, was quite um, was quite creepy and scary on occasion. Um, but actually, th- throughout, I think it was sustained very well. Because um, in terms of this series, I know that I rate it. You know, the Spyfall is really rather good. I quite like to do an episode. Yeah. Uh, I'll give it some thought and maybe get round to it at some other point. But yeah, it might be the case that this is um, this might be my favourite Jodie Whittaker episode. On Twitter, Jedo, I'm sorry if I pronounced that wrong. Finally, we see the Doctor show her better side. We do see uh, a very unique position that the Doctor's in, so we're seeing new facets of her um, personality. True. I think, I mean, certainly uh, the Doctor's very, in terms of Jodie Whittaker, she's given a lot of uh, strong material to work with in this episode, both in terms of the humour, humorous side of things. So, you know, the way that she performs, always like I call it Tuesday line, uh, and a few other moments. So she pref- she's given some good humour to work with and performs that really rather well. Uh, it, it could be argued, actually, especially as that line of dialogue is with the Cybermen, um, you know, you could compare it to the likes of you know, the, the way that Patrick Troughton or Tom Baker, uh, their doctors would um, try and defuse a situation and ascertain information by making the villain think that they're stupid. Um, so there's that. But she was given this, that strong material to, to use. Um, she was also given stuff that was quite forceful. Jodie Whittaker was very strong in this episode. That isn't to suggest that she hasn't been previously, but I think sometimes the material that she's been given perhaps hasn't allowed her to, to shine as certainly as strongly as she appears here. So uh, thanks uh, very much everyone for getting in contact with us um, in future. 
because we do like hearing from you again as i've said in the past whether you agree with us or not it's great to to hear people engage and, and get their different viewpoints on the episodes or um things that they like or dislike or whatever so get in contact with us you can get in contact with us on facebook we're on facebook.com forward slash cloister bell we're on twitter at podcast bell instagram at cloister underscore bell so just to sum things up rob as a conclusion i think it's safe to say that we both like this episode yes it was enjoyable jacob collins levy as lord byron might be my favorite performance of the series even though we didn't get enough of it <laughs> yeah i think uh, um uh, i wish i could remember the actor's name who played the uh, the butler but um he was really rather good uh and and pre- well, actually, sort of in a in a way, he sort of sums up. He, he provides a bit of a shorthand for the episode because he's there at the beginning, uh, providing the humorous moments with you know, <laughs> you know, cutting through the pretensions of, of these you know these literary people. Uh, but then also, you know, he you know he's the first victim in the episode. You know, he's the first person who dies, and it's brutal. And the episode mm. does seem to have that that wonderful balance of of um, of drama, horror, and humor. Uh, anyway, I thought you know, just a nice little uh, character, if you like, performed very yeah. well. What was um, his last line? He's like, uh, "Are you the guardian?" He's like, "No, I'm the valet." Or something. Yes, yeah, that's it. Which, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, great, li- you know, great line in, uh, in horror. It's something you can imagine Douglas Adams writing, actually. But yeah, I agree. I think uh, the, the cast were um, were superb. I think it was very well cast, very well directed. Cinematography, lighting, costume design, all the rest of it. I think it was very good. In terms of a score? I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. Oh, great. Uh, I've given it exactly the same, 9 out of 10. I think it was, it was a very good episode. Um, yeah, I liked it an awful lot. And it's like, well, that, uh, that person's feedback that we got is... Pro- it probably is the, the best episode of the Jodie Whittaker era that we, we've had up until this point. Yeah. If not, it's certainly very... Highly up there. I think I, get, I marked it down a point for the big finish, like an element. <laughs> oh, right, okay, no, that's fair enough. And I think actually, as Doctor Who as a whole, I think it's arguably one as the best. So, not just in terms of Jodie Whittaker's era of the show, but as Doctor Who as a whole. It's certainly very memorable, and I'd certainly enjoy watching it again, I think. So, just to wrap things up, um, so earlier on, we asked each other um, a question. Uh, so see if we know the answer. Uh, so, Rob, I asked you, Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus is a novel written by Mary Shelley. What year was it published? I'm just going to pull this out of thin air here. This story is set in 1816, is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, well, initially my gut feeling was 1840, but since this is quite early on, I'm going to go with 1830. Our survey said... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, actually, because, uh, yeah, it was uh, published... I mean, that's a good guess. But no, it was published in 1818. Ah, so soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so soon. So not long after the events of this episode. Darn it. <laughs> um, so my question to you was, in the 2006 two-parter, Rise of Cybermen, Age of Steel, who created the Cybermen? I found this really difficult because um, I know the character. Uh, he's that guy from Only Fools and Horses, and he sits in a massive chair. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I know the character. 
I just can't think of the name. Uh, I think it's wrong. I've got Lumiere stuck in my head. Lumiere. Yeah. The, the candlestick from Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> it wasn't him. Oh darn it! Um, no, nah, I've got no idea. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> we think so, wasn't that bit where he breaks out into song? <laughs> Be my guest. <laughs> oh, I want to watch uh, Beauty and the Beast. Be my guest. Anyway, no, sorry, no idea. What was the chap's it w- name? It was John Lumick. The, ah. Lumic, the Lumic unit. You were very close. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> Although, we're sticking in for a character from a Walt Disney movie. Yes. So, I think that's it for this episode. Uh, hope you've enjoyed it. And tune in next week where we will be looking at, can't believe it, we're nearly there, episode 9 of series 12.